Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Hey, John, how's it going? Fine, Matt. Uh, great, to, uh, great to see you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we finally have this conversation. It's, uh, um, I, I think about your book, The Power of Bad, all the time now because I'm trying to, trying to understand the crazy world we live in, in, in the media and social media. And, and I had the occasion to re-listen to a, a podcast you did, I suspect, days before... Um, the world started shutting down in response to the pandemic, and and uh, it was it was interesting because you were talking about um, trade offs and risk and 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 why um, people and particularly the press focus focus on the bad instead of instead of uh, thinking more rationally about about trade offs and and I wonder um, what your assessment is now three and a half years later. Um, did did we all just go crazy? Yeah, I mean, it, it, um, that book, The Power of Bad, was published, in, I think, in January of, of 2020. And we had this chapter in it called The Crisis Crisis um, about this whole crisis industry that exists of academics and journalists and activists and politicians and bureaucrats. And the three rules we had for the crisis crisis were uh, the world will always be in crisis. The crisis is never as bad as it sounds, and the solution could easily make things worse. And I've been—I mean, I've been debunking crises for decades now, but COVID—I I was still just astonished at how bad things got in COVID, at how this crisis industry is just completely out of control and just did unprecedented damage. I mean, I never dreamed that, that you'd be able to scare people into shutting down society, you know, depriving kids of school ordering people to, uh, to, you know, stop going to church, doing, I mean, it's unbelievable that, that this happened. And yet, you know, that's where we are now. This crisis industry is just, and, and now they've emboldened and they're talking about, well, COVID, our response to COVID was a blueprint for how we deal with climate change. And yeah. that'll be the never ending crisis. You know, every time there's a hot day somewhere, it's, it's, you know, it's one more excuse to restrict people's freedom. It's just astonishing, I think. And, um, and I, I really just, I mean, I was astonished at how awful the media was. I mean, the mainstream media became absolutely worthless during COVID as far as, you know, they were only interested in doing panic porn. You know, we're just going to give you this daily count of the deaths and the this and, put, you know, put nothing in perspective, completely overlook um, any sort of cost benefit analysis. I mean, COVID was a real problem, but um, uh, the best... Uh, but uh, we would have been better off, I think, without the CDC and, you know, during COVID. I mean, they did so much damage. You know, if only we had done what Sweden did, if only there had been more governors like Ron DeSantis who just ignored the CDC. Um, our society and our children would have been so much better off. One of the, what, one of the, the, the collateral damages of all of that hysteria and particularly the behavior of the CDC and, and, uh, public health officials generally um, is is devastating to the reputation of science itself, and they, you know, they claim to be the science, but but in truth, uh, all of the all of the the noble lies and all of the flip flopping, 
and all of the authoritarianism, I think, has, has sort of rightfully made people like me, who I would have absolutely called myself pro, pro-science, almost have a, a blind faith in this process of, of smart people trying to figure out how the world actually works. And now I'm skeptical of everything because I, I sort of, I've come to realize that, that science itself has been corrupted by, by being intertwined with, with government, with all of its perverse incentives and, and inclinations to, to control our lives. Exactly. I mean, I've been covering science for most of my career. And again, I was, you know, and I, I've, you know, I've gotten skeptical. I did a piece for City Journal a few years ago called The Corruption of Public Health. And that and it was and it was evident then that, that was one of the worst areas where progressives had just taken over public health. And their definition of public health um, of, uh, was basically what can we do to expand the government's control over things? You know, what can the government do more? And so they you know, the public health, the main professional association, you know, at their annual meeting, they'd be passing resolutions about the minimum wage, about, you know, all these progressive causes. And, and suddenly there were epidemics of gun violence and, ob- and, uh, and all these epidemics that weren't really what the CDC and the public health establishment was founded to do. But they were looking for any excuse to expand the government control. And then, but even, you know, even having written all that and, and seeing how bad the, um, this movement had been taken over by the left, I was still stunned. I mean, you know, before COVID, the, you know, the, you know, the world's leading experts on infectious diseases and on pandemics had drawn up plans at the CDC, at, in Canada, the UK, Sweden, you know, these countries had drawn and they had reviewed all the evidence. They looked back at, and they were planning for something as bad or worse than the Spanish flu epidemic of, um, of the early 20th century. And they all recommended you don't lock down, you don't mask the public, there's no evidence this stuff works and the collateral damage will be enormous. Um, and yet, um, and that was what, you know, even Fauci at the start said, you know, oh, I can't imagine America locking down and no, there's no, you know, he advised a colleague, don't wear a mask on a plane, there's no evidence it works. And then suddenly it just all flipped around that, that um, China knows what's going on and we'll do whatever China does as if that's a great role model for us. And it was just astonishing how the science, you know, the science got suddenly completely reversed. And then, and it wasn't really, you know, and it was the CDC, um, it was the mainstream media that was uh, uh, just slavishly parroting that and trying to censor anyone who disagreed. And it was also scientific journals where suddenly you know, they fell on the line and, 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 you know, they wouldn't publish pieces that they uh, that contradicted the narrative, that, that social media platforms, of course, were doing it. It was just astonishing. And so it's really very hard to to put my, I mean, I, I don't really put any faith in, 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 you know, in the CDC or the public health establishment anymore. And, and what's worse three years later is there's been so so little um, sense of, gee, we made a mistake and maybe we should do better next time. I mean, mean, the CDC's director went to Congress and said, yes, we did make mistakes, we didn't do enough. And we need authority to do even more next time. It's just astonishing. And and, um, I did a piece for City Journal wondering, I mean, how do you fix this? How do you make sure we don't repeat this? And it's really, it's hard to imagine because the traditional, method for dealing with something like this is, you know, after the Challenger disaster, after 9-11, 
you appoint a blue ribbon commission to examine it and say what went wrong, what went right, what should we do next time? But but who would we appoint to this? Who would be trusted? You know that I mean the whole public health and science establishment was in on this. Now there were some great scientists speaking out, um, but and and they would be you know obvious ones to investigate. But uh, you know now it's become so polarized and and the establishment has been so corrupted and is so reluctant to admit their mistakes that they would probably just be written off as, oh, they're these conservative crazies, you know, because they didn't buy into the lies that we were propagating. You know, it, it strikes me, you you talk about the, the crisis industry, and I'll, I'll call it the crisis industrial complex, because yeah, it's this... It's a, it's a great uh, overlay of, of government agencies and nonprofits and the media, all who um, um, at least think they're profiting from creating creating mass hysteria and... and and to me, it's it's probably as as sim- it it doesn't tell us how to fix it, perhaps, but it's probably as simple as a as a public choice story of of bootleggers and Baptists. Like everybody's going to make more money. The more crises there are, they're going to grow their budgets, they're going to grow their prestige. And and conversely, if you question the the official narrative, um, you will you will be destroyed. And that that was different, I think. Then even back when you were writing for the New York Times, it strikes me that the the cancellation or or almost elimination of anybody questioning the official lockdown narrative was was swift and brutal. Right, it's really I, I mean, it was swift and brutal. And, and you're actually right about the incentives. I mean, it's, it's one of the problems. I mean, I've been thinking about expanding that chapter, the crisis crisis, into a book, and there are. You know, tons of examples. You see it every day of something that's being hyped, and you know, and the solution making things worse. You know, the fossil fuels. We have to eliminate cars now, and and you know, all the problems that's going to cause. I mean, you see it every day. And and what has been has given me pause is that it's really hard to come up with a solution because the incentives. There's money to be made by getting more clicks. You know, because of the power of bad, the negativity effect, people click on stuff that's, you know, uh, uh, that scares them. That's the way you get a mass audience. Uh, I mean, the good news is that, you know, shows like yours, social media, there are all these new platforms that appeal, uh, that don't have to get an absolute, you know, mass audience of the whole country, and they can appeal to people's better qualities instead of just scaring them. But, you know, in the mass media, um, there's always this incentive to scare people. There's always an incentive for bureaucrats to get bigger budgets, and you don't get budgets for, by saying something isn't a problem. And that's how scientists get funding too. We have to solve this crisis. And and you know, there's kind of a niche market for some of us. I mean, I you know, I write articles and books, and there 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 are other debunkers around. And and the web is great, and that you know, there is now this lively you know market for debunking in a sense. Um, you know, you know, during the lockdowns, the, uh, Toby Young, the journalist in, in, in London, started the day at the lockdown skeptic. It's now the Daily Skeptic, and they, you know, they do great work, and you know, like, as you do in debunking this stuff. But it's, you know, it's so hard to get. Um, it's hard to found huge institutions based on that. You know, it, it, there just isn't the money to be made in not scaring people. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty 
and look cool. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm in the process. I'm working on a documentary with uh, Senator Rand Paul trying to get to the roots of uh, specifically the cover-up um, because I, I, think, I think it's interesting to figure out why those incentives were so misaligned. And just from my pers- personal experience, um, when I was a young economist, I worked on Capitol Hill um, when the Republicans took over in 1994. And I remember um, Newt Gingrich um, sort of slavishly worshiping science and wanting to radically expand uh, government investment in basic science, um, which Republicans did with, with the Clinton administration. And then after, after 9-11, um, I think that's probably when Fauci consolidated his budget and his power um, under the, the, the supposed threat of bioterrorism. And so I think, I think the answer, um, the problem was the centralization, um, de facto centralization of science funding through the government, because even if the government wasn't writing the check directly, the imprimatur of that probably dictated all private funds. So the solution, and I don't know how to pull this off, but the solution has to be a very, very clear separation of science and state because the centralization and those perverse incentives are how we got here. But I don't know how to unwind it now that it's now that it's such a powerful beast. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish you luck. I'd love to see where you find that because it's so hard to unwind. You know, and besides the government and this whole bioterrorism complex and um, doing that, you know, you have like the Gates Foundation, which was, you know, even worse. And, you know, the... Uh, um, you know, Bill Gates did that book, um, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic, and uh, I, I love the Daily Skeptic had a headline, uh, We Must Find a Way to Prevent Bill Gates from Preventing the Next Pandemic. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, Michael Bloomberg funds a lot of the, the awful stuff in public health, the whole war on vaping, you know, one of the great public health advances of the last century, is getting all these people to quit smoking. And But it, the, the danger was that, you know, for the anti-tobacco activists, suddenly nobody's smoking, they need a new cause. So they pick, they pick on vaping. And it's just, you know, it's, I mean, that's, you know, it's just a class. I mean, that's the, you know, the bootleggers and Baptists and the March of Dimes syndrome. I'm, I'm doing a piece for City Journal on that about how you know the, the you know the way the march of dimes once polio was conquered they had to invent a new cause for themselves they didn't go out of business and that's true with all these movements you know the gay rights movement the civil rights movement the um you know the anti-tobacco movement you know these activists need a job and so they'll you know they've got to keep finding new things to scare people about and and speaking of scaring people and you you write about this in in your book and you pretty much write about it all the time the the culpability of of uh the, the mainstream media just going from one crisis to another. Um, I suspect a lot of my viewers know your, your story, uh, your journey from the New York Times to the, the City Journal and being an independent investigative journalist. But if you could remind people of, of your, you, 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 were, you were one of them. There was, there was blood on your hands. <laughs> yeah, I was a lone skeptic at the New York Times. Well, there were a couple of us, but um, back then, uh, but I started out in newspapers um, after college in the, uh, various newspapers. Then I wrote for science magazines in the 1980s. And then I joined the Times in, in 1990. And I wrote, I covered um, Metro stuff for a while. I did some foreign stuff. I wrote an op-ed column. I wrote a column called The Big City by New York. And then I, I wrote, you know, for about seven years, I wrote a science column. Um, and, you know, the science you know, the science section was, you know, at that time was was quite good. It, it, you know, it had, it had really data-driven reporters. 
um, who, who you know, who did pay attention to the numbers. Um, and unfortunately, I think you know, throughout the mainstream media, there's been just a loss of of that sort of you know um, dedication to data. And that there's you know, it, partly I think it's the web, the, the pressure for clicks. Um, partly there's a new generation of journalists who have just you know grown up and you know have been indoctrinated um, in college and in high school and college and they're into the sort of woke religion and and just sort of see journalism as the as their duty to advance that. So it's uh, you know it's it's sad to see. I mean the good thing is there are voices like yours and there are lots of other new voices on the web and um, and people are turning to them more and more. It is it is bizarre, and I know I know you've talked about this quite a bit. It's bizarre to see um, uh, very like serious reporters with with seeming seemingly no interest in defending free speech in the First Amendment, and and I'm I'm old enough to remember when that was that was the the sacred thing that we all agreed on, even regardless of where we were coming from politically or philosophically, that that. America um, very much believed in a free press and and free speech on campus and all that stuff, and and I'm I'm thinking uh, how far we've come. You you tweeted about this, but you know current news. Uh, David Portnoy, the 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 sports guy, um, exposed a Washington Post reporter who was who was directly threatening and intimidating um, companies to to pull out of his charity pizza event. Um, that's that's new behavior, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I did a piece, I think, in 2019 for City Journal because it, it was an amazing trend to me. And, and the piece was headlined Journalists Against Free Speech. And as you say, it used to be that, you know, left, right journalists did at least agree on the First Amendment, that our whole our jobs depend on it. Um, and Nat Hentoff was the classic. He was, you know, very left wing, but he wrote books. He wrote books defending free speech. He defended Nazis and and the Klan's right to, you know, to have a parade and and do free speech, and it it started. I mean, it's been changing. Uh, um, in talking to Greg Lukianoff at uh, at Fire, you know, the great group, the uh, uh, that's been defending free speech on campus and and elsewhere, um, he dated to around 2012-2013 when Ray Kelly was shouted down at Brown University and. And Greg said there had been these things before where activists had done. Of course, there was stuff back in the 60s and 70s where, you know, the uh, IQ researchers needed police protection. They were shouting people down. But even, you know, but the original Berkeley free speech movement, they supported the right of conservatives to speak. You know, they were all for, they actually meant it when they said free speech, even though they were left wing. And, but, but when that happened at Brown, Suddenly, you know, the administration people were not speaking up for free speech. They were they were actually defending the protesters. And I was stunned to see, you know, some of the more recent ones. And when there were Milo um, Yiannopoulos um, and who else was it that got shouted down? That he was that was uh, Ben Shapiro was, certainly was, did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but I was amazed to see the college newspapers. Oh, when um, at Middlebury College, it was. Uh, was it Charles Murray there? Who, yeah, it was uh, Charles Murray, yeah. Right, right. My memory's a little rusty. But in both those cases, I think at Berkeley and at Middlebury, the college papers, you know, did not editorialize in favor of free speech. They actually, Berkeley criticized them. You know, the, the Indianapolis never should, he did not belong here. He shouldn't have been invited. 
And the Middlebury paper, they usually run editorials, but they suspended their editorial for that for that issue because they just couldn't really take a stand on, on whether physically assaulting a professor and a speaker were wrong or not. So they they invited guest opinion writers in, most of whom basically uh, sided with the protesters. And this thing, as you say, with the Washington Post, um, I also wrote about the, this trend of deplatforming people and trying to demonetize them the way they were, they were doing to, to David Portnoy, where, you know, the Huffington Post, uh, you know, would do this. They, they would start reaching out, as they would put in their stories, to advertisers of right-wing commentators and, and say, gee, you know, this person is a horrible person who's a sexist, a racist, a homophobe, whatever, and reaching out to do it. And I asked the editor of the Huffington Post, um, well, how would you feel if people did this to you? And now, you know, they, I, I couldn't get a straight answer at all. In fact, when someone did try, suggest that there was one conservative group that was trying to organize some advertising boycotts, the way that uh, Sleeping Giants, is, this left-wing group, is, has a whole industry of digging up, you know, information on, you know, taking bad quotes out of context of conservatives and going out and then trying to boycott Tucker Carlson, Fox News, other places, and um, and and someone on the right was trying to do this with with very little success. And, and uh, the editor of the of the HuffPost, Lydia Polgren, said, "Oh, this is a real threat to journalism." But that's what her own journalists are doing, you know. Yeah. And this is what. And I was, you know, I, I'm not sure how much the Washington Post had done this before, but the same with Portnoy was really going after his advertiser and saying he's a he's problematic he's this and try, just i mean in claiming there was a backlash i think one of the funniest lines in that piece was the the, the supposed movement against portnoy's businesses these pizzerias was led by a, a a mathematician in Minnesota who the Post described with a straight face as the conscience of the food industry. A <laughs> mathematician in Minnesota. It was a completely manufactured backlash by the journalist just trying to silence someone else. And, yeah. um, and I just find it amazing. Journalists are trying to put other journalists out of business. At least there used to be a consensus that you know, we're all in this industry, we need the First Amendment, let's allow free speech. But now it's, they've just gone really authoritarian. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. I'm trying to think if it was the Huffington Post or Vice, something like that, that has now started writing hit pieces on Rumble for refusing the British government's insistence on, on deplatforming Russell Brand. So it's, it's, it's the whole industry is like corrupted by this, this, this cancel culture stuff. Yeah, there was something called the Vox. It was called the Vox Ad Apocalypse or something like that, where there was a guy at Vox whose name escapes me at the moment, was this horrible left-wing activist. So I think it left finally. But just, you know, he was defending Antifa protesters and, you know, the violence by them. And you had that, you know, various outlets defending, um, you know, violence by left-wingers, trying to shut down right-wingers. And they went after a bunch of advertisers for, oh, I'm blanking on who it was now, but... But they, uh, you know, and, and HuffPost proudly, 
there was a thing called the Return of Kings. It was a right-wing website, kind of, you know, about sort of men's rights and, and looking at men. And they proudly that they managed to get it demonetized and get it shut down. And you know, what a great achievement for journalists to do that. The uh, um, I, I don't know. It's just it's it. I, I'm just astonished the people that editors keep hiring them because there still are some older adults who remember the old days but i think they're so terrified of their staffs that they you know that they keep hiring these people and and, and letting them run the newsroom yeah they they seem captured right now and and you know at some point maybe business dictates that they that they come around because surely they've noticed that not not just russell brand but certainly um joe rogan and and hundreds of other successful alternative media types are completely eating their lunch um, yeah. with, with more thoughtful, um, um, exploratory conversational style journalism that I think, I think particularly young people find refreshing. So I see, you know, I'm, I'm a short-term pessimist always and a long-term optimist, and I see that trend. Um, but before we get too positive about things and you're talking about, um, cancellation, it seems like a great place to jump off to your latest piece in the, in the city journal, um, that misogyny is a myth. If I got the title right, oh, oh the the misogyny myth. Um, are are you even allowed to 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 suggest such a thing? Well, City Journal is pretty brave. They, you know, they, you know, the the reaction kind of was, well, we've upset, you know, we've upset people about everything else. Why not feminism too? Um, but you know, it's this. Um, the whole idea that, that we're a misogynist society and that women are being held back, I mean, if you actually look at the research into it, it's just an utter myth. Um, it, you know, it's based on, um, I write about science a lot, and there's been this long running thing that it, the women are being held back in science. The National Science Foundation is, has spent, you know, three or $400 million, you know, on this program to enhance equity in science. And it's, you know, and it's it's just frequently declared in science journals, in in editorials, or by the National Science Foundation, the National Academy of Sciences, that women we have to combat you know the discrimination against women, and this is based on there were a couple of you know studies you know very small studies in the in the 1990s that purported to find a bias against women, and I I go through some of the details of my piece, and they just simply were wrong. I mean, they were, you know, terribly flawed. They didn't show what they did and, uh, you know, what they claimed to show. And and then since then, there has just been a massive thousands of studies um, um, looking for bias against women scientists. And, and, and a big study was published earlier this year that reviewed all these studies. And it was done as part of an adversarial collaboration, which means you get researchers who disagree on a topic they agree to work together. We'll go through the literature and we'll see what we can agree on. And in this case, they went through it all. And, and there was an economist, female economist, who'd been critical about, about bias against uh, female economists. And she worked with uh, uh, researchers at Cornell who, who had done these huge studies, um, you know, looking at bias in women. And, and what they found was that, for the, you know, since 2000, there has not been bias against women in science in terms of getting papers published, in terms of getting grants, which have been the claims all along. And then when it comes to being hired and getting tenure, you know, women are preferred over men. You know, they they do better than men with comparable you know credentials. Uh, the National Academy of Science um, 
um, it, it's much easier for women to get into that. You know, the men, you know, the, the men who get in typically, I think, have three times more, you know, publications and citations than the women. So it's, you know, the story is completely the reverse, that there's a discrimination in favor of women. Now, that's just in science. And the piece is, and you see this in all of society. I mean, it's just obvious in popular culture. You know, you go on Oprah and you blame men for any problem and the audience applauds. You know, we, our society is really misandrous. You know, we're guilty of bias against men. You know, you can blame any problem on toxic masculinity um, and testosterone poisoning, but you know, who would dare talk about um, estrogen poisoning or toxic femininity? You know, the the uh, you know in the movie Barbie, they love talking about the patriarchy running society. And if the patriarchy really did, you wouldn't have movies like Barbie, you know, uh, be number one at the box office, which is, you know, just shows men as buffoons and violent idiots, you know, who really ought to step aside and let women run the world. You know, if the patriarchy really did rule society, the, the stock father character in sitcoms, you know, and commercials would not be a doofus dad. You know, it's always women correcting their husbands who don't know what they're doing. So we... Um, but but there is again it's what we were talking about the you know these crisis industrial complexes where you know feminism has just it's got a claim that there's discrimination there's a whole diversity industry or diversity industrial complex that gets money that gets favoritism that that survives by pretending that there's bias against women and and finding new ways to discriminate against men if you've made it this far into the show it means i must be doing something right Key Beyond Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. It it strikes me that um, this 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 industry that's constantly doing this and pitting the sexes against each other, um, it's it's creating a lot of destruction. And I know you briefly mentioned Warren Farrell in your in your article, and and he most recently, I believe, uh, wrote a, a book called The Boy Crisis. And mm-hmm. I've I've talked to him before, and he was. Uh, he, I forget the the categories now, but he was a he was a feminist in the in the sixties and seventies, um, and and I, I would sort of identify with him as that type of feminist because I I I sort of believe in in strong women having choices and doing whatever they they choose with their lives, um, which apparently is not feminism anymore, but but he's talked about the destructive nature. Of of this this sort of anti man attitude, and how it's damaging our boys, and it's damaging families, and it's damaging fatherhood, and it it strikes me that this is not a costless uh, demonization of men that's going on. Oh, it's it's, it's very costly. And you know uh, your point about Warren. I mean, he's done great work on, that, and he was one of the first to really do this. Christina Huff Summers did a book on the war against boys a while ago too, but he was great. I remember that that um, I heard him uh, talking at one point and he said that, you know, when he was a, he was a, a, a male feminist and, you know, as you say, in the 60s and 70s, and his books sold well, 
his, you know, he was, you know, uh, you know, uh, giving lectures, invited to give lectures all the time, was making a very good living at it. And then he started looking around and realizing, wait a minute, boy, boys and men are trailing in school. They're, you know, their men are, you know, are, are committing suicide more. You know, men, uh, are there all these bad things happening to men that we're not paying attention to? And he said, so he made this transition to start worrying about that. And he said, you know, suddenly he did that knowing that the people who buy these books are women. You know, it's a female market that, you know, that he wasn't going to get the lecture fees anymore. It was a big financial sacrifice for him to do it, I think, because, um, you know, there's a market for, you know, telling women that they're oppressed and, and giving them special favors. And as you say, it's, it's, it is very costly to both. And, you know, most of us, and um, I mean, I sum up the latest evidence in this in this piece in City Journal, the misogyny myth, and I think it's a pretty good compendium showing you all the ways that things are stacked against men now. And but and I also know Warren's work and, and you know, there's been, you know, a bunch of other books on this um, pointing this out and they just get very little attention. And, and those of us who point out this myth of misogyny, we tend to end up the problem is, is that, you know, men don't really, nobody really cares about men's welfare very much, including men themselves. I mean, they, you know, men don't get ahead by complaining. They, you know, they're just feeling is I'll just go ahead and figure out a way to, you know, to, I'll start my own business instead of trying to work my way up a corporation that is not going to promote me because I'm, um, I'm male. And so that, you know, there isn't a great market of people caring about that. And so, what we end up trying to say is, you know, is, well, look, it's bad for women, too. <laughs> I mean, that's how you get attention. Um, and, you know, the Me Too movement has been really bad for women. And, that, um, you know, because of these false, you know, there have been, um, you know, false accusations that have ruined men's careers. And it's made men very, you know, very leery. And so now uh, the diversity industry complains, and there are surveys showing this, they complain that a lot of men, uh, managers and employees don't want to meet with, you know, female colleagues alone because they're afraid of getting me too. And in the diversity industry is, gee, this is horrible that men are doing this. You know, they should just, you know, man up and step up and, and go ahead. And and yet, you know, these are real risk you face. If, you know, if there's somebody who's, who doesn't like you at work, they suddenly have this enormous, you know, cudgel they can beat you with. And, you know, the whole believe all women thing that, you know, that it, it if you're accused of something, the, we're supposed to, as in the Russell Brand case, we're supposed to automatically believe the accuser and judge the man guilty, you know, demonetize him on, uh, on YouTube and do this. So men have become very leery to meet with women alone, and this hurts women um, because um, obviously that, you, you know, um, they benefit from these meetings and they also benefit from male mentors. There's, a, you know, sense. Uh, one of the justifications for favoring women in promotions, you promote them even if they're the, not the most qualified candidate, is that they will help other women fight against the patriarchy, that women will support each other. We need to get more women in executive positions to help other women. And, you know, but but is that true? And, and there have been, been, been a couple of interesting studies. There was one that looked at, at it's scientists and you know it's it, it, it's senior male and female scientists who mentor junior scientists and they found that the junior female scientists who published papers with male mentors did better than the ones who who, who published papers with um, female mentors and they looked at like three million uh, mentor protege relationships 
And the reaction to this was there was so much outrage among female senior scientists that they that, that the journal pressured on this ridiculously flimsy, uh, cynical pretext to withdraw the paper on this methodological nitpick that had never been applied to, pa to other papers that had had politically acceptable conclusions. And so, you know, these junior scientists who wrote the paper, the lead author was a junior female scientist. They had to apologize and they said, well, we still think the findings are valid, but we're sorry we caused pain to female scientists um, on an individual level. So that shows you, and then the other example about the Me Too uh, movement that I cite is that um, after Me Too, there's been a decline um, um, among collaborations between male and female economists, you know, between um, especially the ones uh, the junior economists at universities who are looking for tenure, and there's been and so this decline has hurt the junior female economists because they did not compensate. Uh, they're doing fewer papers with uh, uh, with male colleagues, and they haven't compensated by doing more papers with female colleagues. And so, whereas the male junior economists, they just compensated, they, you know, they started doing more work with other men because they couldn't be me too by other men. And so uh, there was this perverse thing that happened where, you know, female junior economists were getting tenure at a lower rate that, you know, their chance of getting tenure went down because they weren't publishing as much because men were afraid to work with them. So that's, you know, one example of how, you know, this just poisons relations between the sexes. It's, you know, so many marriages began as, as office romances, but now, you know, who's, you know, now, and women still want men to make the first move in courtship. There's, you know, I cite research data from match.com and singles in America and these surveys, you know, women want men to make the first move, but now you can be reported to, you know, the HR department for subjecting a colleague to unwanted attention. So, you know, this myth of misogyny, this, this attempt to portray men as oppressing women and women as victims, you know, it creates jobs for the HR people and the diversity industry, but it really is poisoning relations between the sexes. And, and you know, it's demoralizing and demeaning both sexes. I mean, you're penalizing hardworking men who don't get, you know, adequately rewarded for their achievements. They don't get the promotions, the awards. And you're telling women, you know, you're discouraging women by by telling them, oh, you're going to face so much discrimination and basically encouraging them to wallow in this imagined victimhood. So, you know, it's enormously costly to both sexes. It's it's particularly frustrating to me as, as someone, uh, my wife Terry and I will sometimes give talks together and sort of half jokingly, I describe myself as a radical feminist and she describes herself as an anti-feminist. And we actually mean, we mean exactly the same thing. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, we're, we're sort of destroying what, what should be a celebration of, of, of liberation for women, where they, they do absolutely modern society, modern capitalism has, has liberated them from um, roles that they, they might have felt um, locked into um, generations ago. And I'm thinking, uh, maybe you've read this book. Uh, my old friend Steve Horowitz wrote a book called Hayek's Modern Family, where he basically argues that it is capitalism that that um, destroyed the pa patriarchy. I don't know if he uses that word. Maybe that wasn't a buzzword at the time. And that um, you know, because of of growing prosperity, um, the traditional family roles where the the 
the husband went out and killed something for dinner and the wife raised the kids, that that, that, was, that was an economic necessity to live that way. And as we got wealthier and wealthier, we were able to um, um, make more choices because the, the imperative to survive um, the night, the week, the winter was no longer the only thing that mattered. And so in, in, one, in one way, we've, you know, we're, we're victims of our own success because we've, we've liberated everybody to make choices about their careers and their, their, their families and everything else. And now we're just tearing us apart with this, with this, with this BS um, political crisis that, w- that you were just talking about. Yeah, th- th- that's great. And I, I've not seen that book, but I will look for it now. No, I mean, if you go back, what I point out um, in the misogyny myth is that, you know, we all owe all these opportunities and uh, other, other both sexes have now are really, um, they're due to this uh, a revolution since the Enlightenment. And that was really created by, by meritocracy that, you know, that until the 18th century, yeah, you had some isolated meritocracies, but you basically had the, these aristocracies, these stagnant aristocracies where male nobles were given special privileges and no one else could compete with them. And, you know, they got the rewards and they ran society. And then, you know, when that got upended, when male, at first it was mainly men, male commoners got a chance to compete. That just transformed the world. And, you know, we had ideas of freedom and new ideas of government, science, the whole industrial revolution. Uh, we had new industries. Um, it just transformed the world made, and it made us so much richer. And it was that that liberated women from their roles, that it was, you know, that it was new industries and inventions, you know, textile mills, you know, some of the women didn't have to spend their days, you know, making clothes. There were new food processing industries, so you didn't have to spend all day cooking. There were washing machines, you know, all these technological advancements that were mostly made by men, but they liberated women. And, you know, the most, um, you know, we always hear about gender gaps that, um, and there's so many gender gaps that don't favor men, but we hear about the gender pay gap and we hear about, you know, there aren't, uh, there's a gender gap in the executive, in the C-suite. But, you know, the most important gender gap at all is the uh, longevity gap, who actually gets to live longer. And before the Industrial Revolution, before we had uh, the Enlightenment and, and the Industrial Revolution, men lived longer than women. And that gap reversed, you know, thanks to thanks to modern medicine, you know, modern public health and other forces. And so women now live much longer than men. And, you know, they also get a bigger share of, of funding, of federal funding for medical research. Um, so women, you know, benefited enormously from all those male commoners, you know, from that meritocratic competition in the 18th and 19th centuries that transformed the world. And then, you know, that's what liberated women in the 20th century. Century about and, and, and you know they could and there had been a myth you know perpetrated by the old male aristocracy and and to some extent that lasted in, into the 18th and 19th centuries that women were too fragile they were too intellectually limited to to succeed in the public sphere but you know it was men it, it was all these male inventions and industries that liberated women to go out and, and work in the public sphere and they shattered that myth they showed that they could compete that they could do that and so now that everyone is so much richer, so much freer, has so many more opportunities than ever. We're now reverting back to this old, um, we're getting rid of meritocracy and getting back to another old spoil system, except instead of male aristocrats being the beneficiaries, it's now, you know, the diversity industry that is now awarding jobs according to your membership in a group. And, you know, 
a meritocracy. I mean, Andrew Wolverine's did this great book called The Aristocracy of Talent, and he he argues very persuasively that it was meritocracy that made the modern world. That you know, the idea that that your success, that you should be able to succeed according to your individual abilities and accomplishments, not your membership in a group. That's what remade the modern world. And now we're abandoning that because it all depends on what group and which identity group you belong to. Those are the people who get rewarded. Okay, if we haven't been canceled yet, we have to talk about something even more controversial, the, the perhaps the central um, religious symbol of the pandemic industrial complex, um, the mask. And you, you wrote a piece uh, fairly recently, no masks, please, we're rational. Um, and I, I, it's so straightforward and, and so obvious to me. And I'll start with the story. Um, about 20 years ago, I survived stage four cancer. And anybody that's ever been through that knows that chemotherapy eventually completely destroys your immune system and you're, you're vulnerable to, to all sorts of things. And when, when the masking thing started, I thought back to um, the nurses that would administer my chemotherapy. Nobody was ever wearing a mask. And, and I think to myself, when, when did the science so, so radically flip that, that someone that had no immune system, they saw no benefit in masking around me, but um, today there's supposedly all these benefits of masking. Um, is that true? No, it's, um, I mean, surgeons have worn masks for a while. And the, re and the reason the surgeons do is, um, you know, droplets from coughing and sneezing onto people. And you get bacteria in those droplets, you know, which are very large. And masks, and bacteria are much larger than viruses, and you can trap them. Um, you know, even with surgeons, it's not really clear the masks work. They're, you know, they, they've been using them for a while, um, but there have been at least one or two you know, controlled studies where they really didn't find any benefit from it. So it's not clear that they even worked for that specific purpose. But the idea that you stop respiratory viruses, you know, with it is, you know, that are airborne, there, there simply isn't evidence that that works. I mean, you know, people would, you know, there were some experiments with laboratories where, you know, that if you did this, that it seemed to work in the lab. But these are very artificial situations, and you know the gold standard in medical research is is the randomized clinical trial. And there were a bunch of these before COVID um, that were done, and and this was why the CDC and the UK and all these other countries, when they drew up plans for a pandemic, they looked at those trials and said we don't. There's no evidence that masking the public helps. Um, I mean, you know. Uh, one can come up with theoretical reasons why a mask might, you know, reduce the viral load or, or do things like that. But, but there's so many downsides to masks that, you know, they also trap, you know, pathogens on the inside. So you're breathing that. You're breathing in more carbon dioxide, which is, uh, which is not healthy. You know, there are lots of harms. There are obvious harms, and you, you know, there's a whole constellation of symptoms of fatigue, reduced cognitive ability. Um, headaches, things that this called mask-induced exhaustion syndrome, and this was all known before COVID. And this is why you know the experts who had drawn up the pandemic plan said, no, there are a lot of downsides to masks. Uh, obviously, it, it's hard for social interactions. It's hard for you know uh, uh, for people uh, uh, with various disabilities if they can't see people's faces. It's terrible for children who are trying to figure out you know 
uh, to learn to read, to, to learn how to get along with other people. Um, there are all these downsides, and we don't have the evidence that the masks work. And then during COVID, there were one of the shameful things about the CDC and the NIH here in the United States is they issued all these edicts that completely upended society. They, they basically conducted an enormous experiment on the entire population, you know, forcing people to do these things. And they didn't even bother to really track the results. You know, I mean, I mean, at least they could have paid attention. And so the best evidence, you know, the best research into masks actually came from other countries where they did do randomized clinical trials. And the evidence, you know, was that they did, you know, there was no evidence that the masks made a significant difference. Um, you know, at City Journal, I've published a few times now, you know, this great graph that, uh, that a data analyst did that, and it tracked throughout the pandemic Every week of the pandemic, they looked at the infection rates in every state, and they and they just classified them by a state that had a mask mandate that week and a state that didn't. And the curves throughout the pandemic just are identical. You know, the, there was no difference in the death rates. You know, the the states without the mask mandates actually had slightly lower death rates. Um, you know, so that's I mean that's not a, a randomized clinical trial, but it's a huge natural experiment, the mandate states versus the non-mandate, and you saw no effect at all. And you know, there are studies around the world. You know, there's data like that around the world showing it. You know, Sweden discouraged its citizens from wearing masks because they knew about the downside of them, and they had the lowest excess mortality rate in Europe. Um, and the other Scandinavian countries did very well too, and they also mostly discouraged masks too. So it's, and why people keep doing this, it's just, I guess the CDC simply and the mainstream media can't admit how wrong they were. That uh, I compared them in this piece in City Journal to, you know, villagers in, in uh, 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 Thailand and, and Cambodia who would have these magic scarecrows that were, that they would put outside their huts to ward off the coronavirus. And it's really, I um, said the villagers, I think uh, the, it's not quite fair to compare the, the maskaholics to the villagers because at least the villagers' scarecrows didn't hurt anyone else, whereas the mask had all these downsides. So originally, I thought that it was it was kind of uh, you know politicians and bureaucrats having to do something in the face of a crisis, having sort of whipped people up, and and it's better to to do more, even if it if it makes no difference. But I've become more cynical about it. Um, you know, we all we all noticed when Fauci switched from from mocking, almost mocking mask wearing and, and explaining all the a lot of the things you just said to um, insisting. I think he's still insisting to this day, even when CNN calls him out for for some of the data. And, and I'm reminded of a of a story. I don't I don't know if you know the economist Michael Munger and Michael. He has done a lot of, uh, he's an economist, and he's, he's done a lot of research on the um, oftentimes irrational and, and anti-environmental outcomes when it comes to recycling. And, and he wrote this article a couple years ago, right before the pandemic, where he was giving a, a keynote talk um, at a gathering in Australia of, of um, uh, all of the interest groups, the, the recycling industrial complex um, that were that, that were working to encourage recycling and, and probably making a healthy profit doing it. And he was wondering why he had been invited to this because he was going to give a talk explaining why, particularly when it comes to glass, um, the, your, your stated environmental goals are, are completely undermined by recycling. 
And he tells this story about after the talk, like he was surprised that more people didn't attack him during the talk. And afterwards, during coffee, he asked somebody, he asked several people, um, uh, why, why didn't I get more of a negative uh, response? And, and they said, oh, we understand the economics of this, but we think it's important to train people how to submit to these rules. And, and that's our goal here. And, it, and the economics don't really matter to us. So I wonder if, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if we're being trained to yeah. submit to additional um, attacks on our economic freedom and civil liberties. I, I agree completely. The, you know, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned, you know, Greens are already saying that, the, that our COVID response, that, that, you know, the great thing about it, it showed people are willing to give up all these liberties to follow rules. And now that's what we have to, that's the paradigm for dealing with climate change. And of course, you know, climate, I mean, every human activity involves carbon dioxide. So there's no limit to what you can order people to do. The, um, I mean, you know, the other thing is that, that um, you know, green stuff like recycling and that, you know, I set a record for hate mail at the New York Times Magazine with my article, Recycling is Garbage, back in the 90s. The, um, and, but, you know, these green edicts, they often involve making people sacrifice. And I think some of that is, as you say, that they're, you know, it's training people to follow our rules. It appeals to authoritarians. Um, it, it appeals to people and it creates jobs and, you know, and power for politicians. Um, and that's part of it. But there's also this sense that if, if something is painful to do, it must be worthwhile. You know, that we must be accomplishing something. And that's one of the problems now with getting people to take off the masks is that they, you know, they, they, may, they wore this around for a year or two. They made all these sacrifices. They couldn't see their, you know, they couldn't see their friends or children. And it's really painful to admit it's cognitive dissonance to admit that that was all a waste. So it's, um, I did a piece for City Journal about that. Um, you know, won't get fooled again, trying to, you know, you know, trying to argue that we should have learned from this. But but the problem, as I pointed out, is that, you know, the, the wearing the masks and, you know, washing your hands, singing happy birthday, you know, six feet apart, you know, scrubbing down the, you know, the uh, sanitizing all the surfaces, which was completely worthless. Um, all those things, all those sacrifices, they were basically the equivalent of a hazing ritual in a fraternity. You know, there's interesting research in the, some of the earliest work in cognitive dissonance was finding that people who went through a hazing ritual, they valued the reward for that hazing ritual much more, even though the reward was worthless. They thought it, that it was worth something because they'd gone through this and didn't want to have to admit to themselves, gee, that was pretty stupid of me to do that. So once you've gone, once you've made these sacrifices, then you tend to think the reward is worth more. And you also feel, I mean, this is, is how fraternity, why fraternities have Haitian rituals. You're part of this group that went through it together. And so, you know, masks have become the, you know, the MAGA hat for progressives and for Democrats now. You wear the mask to show you're part of the group. We've all, we're all in this together. We've all made these sacrifices. And and, and we all stand together. The, the corrosive nature of it is, is frustrating to me as, as a libertarian that, that is very much live and let live on everything as long as you don't hurt me or take my stuff. But, yeah. but I see someone on a mask on a plane now and I'm completely convinced that that person would love to use the power of the state to make me do it too. And, right. I, and I just don't like that person as much. I'll, I don't know them, I'll never talk to them, but I'm like, 
I don't trust that guy. I agree completely. I mean, there's, I mean, some of them may just be sort of loyal sheep who, who, who you know, will just follow anyone's rules and don't really want to take, but they would vote for someone who would take away your freedom. And there were really frightening polls during the pandemic, uh, especially in, in the UK, where a huge number of people wanted the mass mandates to become permanent, you know, during flu season. They wanted, you know, the, you know, these restrictions to continue that, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of people who do like following rules and there are, you know, a, a lot of very um, adept politicians and bureaucrats and activists at, at, who want power badly and will, you know, and will get it. And, and I feel, I mean, when I see someone with a mask now, I, I'm sort of, I share your feeling that I, I'm, I'm kind of appalled at them. And I, and at the same time, I feel kind of sorry that they've just been misled so badly into, you know, into doing something, to looking so stupid, to making the sacrifice that, you know. I mean, there's also this thing that, you know, that in Japan, you know, where they, in Asia, they've been wearing masks more during flu season for a while. And again, there's no evidence that it really, you know, that it does anything. Um, in fact, one, in, in one of my mask articles, someone pointed out that a, a downside of masks um, is that you breathe in more carbon dioxide. And that, and, and they noted that that mask wearers, especially if you're wearing an N95 mask, if you wear it for a while, you're really breathing in toxic levels of carbon dioxide. By toxic, meaning levels that are associated with bad effects on the body. And, and one of the big effects that, that has worried people has been um, carbon di about high carbon dioxide levels on pregnant women. And when the Navy started having female crews, they, this problem worried them so much and they did research and they set a maximum level of carbon dioxide on the submarines. And as these researchers pointed out, those levels are exceeded by people wearing masks. So, you know, basically telling everyone you have to wear masks, including pregnant women, where, and, and, and these researchers noted that that there was a higher level of stillbirths during worldwide during the pandemic, not in Sweden where people didn't wear masks, but it was in the United States and it was especially high in Asia in places where people really you know, were wearing a lot of masks. So that's, you know, that's, I mean, I, I almost want to tell people you really, you're, you're hurting yourself wearing that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I don't know if the, in part, in part of me is just, um, you know, wanted to say, what do you think you're accomplishing? But you know, it's a religion for these people now. It's a sign of virtue. So it's it's the one one thing I've learned in uh, you know my whole career of debunking is it's very hard to dissuade people from their religious beliefs. Yeah, and it's um, the also the the sort of like um, societal hypochondria now. Like I I do I do I am conflicted. I I get angry, but then I then I feel sorry for them because. Um, living your entire life in mortal fear that you might get sick is no way to live life. No, and, and certainly you know that, God. Um, the, um, um, I mean, part of the problem also, I think, is you know, related to the misogyny myth. I don't get into this in that piece, but it's it's something that is, is it's just the feminization of society that, that you know, with women in so many positions of authority and women voters dominating the Democratic Party, women are, are you know, are much more risk averse than men. And 
And so there's this, you know, less thing. Well, we have to take some risks in life in order to get anything done. And women are much more, let's not do that. Let's not go there. And, and the more influence they have, you know, the way they really dominate the Democratic Party, that just leads to this, you know, risk aversion that we, we can't let anyone get sick. We can't, you know, if one person is suffering. I mean, didn't Andrew Cuomo say, if, you know, if the lockdown saved just one life, it, it yeah. will have been worth it. I mean, this is, that's just an idiotic thing to say. You know, you, I mean, in, in reality, um, I've written about this at City Journal, there were, I think during the first year or two of the lockdowns, there were 170,000 excess deaths, that's deaths more than normal, from non-COVID causes, you know, drug overdoses, um, um, you know, traffic accidents, um, you know, depression, you know, that um, all these things, and you disrupt the whole, you know, everyone's life in the country, and of course you're going to have bad effects from it. And, and that led to some deaths, and there's really no evidence that the lockdown saved anyone. So, um, you know, that's a cost-benefit analysis you do. But if you go on this, oh, my God, if it saves one person, you know, I'll wear a mask if it helps, you know, save grandma from this. And it's just not a way to do public policy. Yeah. Well, you, you've, you've chosen a, a difficult task to, to get people to think about cost-benefits and to consider um, scientific data. But I, I appreciate you doing that. Where can people find your work and and where are you on social media? Uh, with at jenturneynyc.com, I have a website. But the main yeah, the main place I'm at now is at City Journal. You know, I've got a um, cityjournal.org, and you know, I've got an author's page that it's got. And City Journal, I have to, I have to say, has really been has been doing some of the best work during the pandemic and uh, and the whole woke and all the woke topics. Uh, so it's been uh, I, I I highly recommend it. Okay, and thank I recommend you. your show, of course. It's been great talking. Oh. Well, hopefully the people watching this recommend my show too. So we'll 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 see the comments. Maybe I took them just a little bit too far by having you on. We'll see how that goes. Well, thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, thank you, Matt. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.